Welcome back to Expanding the Continuum, where we explore the clinical, ethical, and programmatic issues that emerge when providing HIV care to survivors of violence. We invite luminaries in the field to discuss the real implications of a health sector response to intimate and patriarchal violence and the intersections with HIV. This podcast is brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Thanks for joining us. So today we're here uh, talking about housing and the impact on health outcomes for victims of intimate partner violence living with HIV. I'm so excited to have Amy Pelolonis, Deputy Director for the Office of HIV AIDS Housing at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and Eva Lessinger, Director of Programs at the New Orleans Family Justice Center. Thank you both for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. So... Let me just start off like talking about what is this, the connection between violence, HIV, and housing insecurity? Sure, I can start. Um, and so studies show that over half of U.S. women living with HIV have experienced some form of intimate partner violence. Research also shows that transgender women are disproportionately impacted by HIV, intimate partner violence, and housing instability. In addition, uh, studies have shown that 26% of gay men and 37% of bisexual men have experienced intimate partner violence in their lifetime. We know that for people living with HIV, trauma, abuse, and housing instability and homelessness are all associated with poor HIV health outcomes and increased mortality. One study showed that almost um, half of women living with HIV had experienced physical abuse upon disclosing their HIV status. Um, And what we have seen in the the HOPA program is people living with HIV and um, experiencing domestic violence can often be dependent on their abusers for financial resources, for their housing, uh, for their medical care. And these barriers often prevent them from being able to leave and obtain safe, stable housing on their own. Yeah, and I'll just add, you know, I think in addition to the prevalence of and intersections of all of these issues, they, the, the thing that still stands out to me in 2021, almost 2022 at this time of recording, um, is how much stigma um, still exists with both H, uh, HIV status and IPV, um, intimate partner violence. Um, we see a lot of the same um, societal marginalization of folks, right? Um, and folks who are still really either scared to come forward, embarrassed to come forward, blame themselves for either one of these issues or both of these issues if they are suffering from both or experiencing both. Um, and that's really, I think a big driver um, of why both of these issues continue to plague our society in such huge numbers. Um, I would just say, you know, if you're experiencing any one of these things, violence, HIV, or housing insecurity, you are so much more likely to experience the other two. Um, So at whatever point you experience any of them, you become more vulnerable. Um, And so, you know, that's really our task, I think, before us is to think about um, reducing the vulnerabilities, but in my mind, reducing the stigma of both of these experiences is the most important part, uh, most important thing that we could be doing. Right, and, and how stigma is 
um, a challenge for for folks that are seeking housing or trying to keep their housing. Um, you know, we know about all the discrimination that folks face um, with regards to to working with a lot of landlords. We've seen how how um, even even with fair housing laws, how sometimes those play out and um, people people lose their housing or are asked to, to trade sex for housing. Um, but what are what are some of the other challenges that survivors and folks uh, living with HIV face when seeking or, or keeping their housing? So I can speak to some of the challenges we've seen in the HOPWA program and particularly in the, the VAWA HOPWA demonstration that we're talking about today. Things that our LGBTQ plus survivors um, living with HIV are experiencing uh, when they're seeking or trying to maintain their housing. Um, and some of the challenges for those that those survivors face include um, that domestic violence housing programs and services often are only focused on serving cisgender women. Um, and even if they are welcoming to all, staff are not always trained on um, LGBTQ plus domestic violence issues or have staff that um, represent the LGBTQ plus populations living, uh, working in their organization. So they may not feel comfortable accessing housing and services available through those agencies. Uh, Another thing that can pose a challenge for trans individuals specifically in finding housing is their ID card not matching their gender identity, which unfortunately can cause issues when renting with uh, private landlords. Um, And and as already been mentioned, uh, trans individuals also experience housing discrimination disproportionately and can feel like there are limited or no safe housing options in their community. Criminal history can also be a huge barrier, um, especially for uh, many of the LGBTQ plus survivors, uh, either because of coerced illegal acts or uh, often Um, When victims of domestic violence call the police, both the survivor and the perpetrator are arrested, uh, which can lead to, you know, survivors not reaching out for help in violent situations, um, you know, when they are regularly assumed to be the perpetrator. Um, And also, I really just want to mention again, because it is still so, it's so important, um, HIV stigma and discrimination are still major issues facing Uh, people living with HIV um, specifically, um, and that can lead to being unlawfully denied or evicted from housing if their HIV status is disclosed to a landlord, either by the individual themselves, their abuser, or another party. Yeah, I think we saw all of those dynamics play out a lot that Amy mentioned, Um, a lot of discrimination. Certainly, you know, generally all of our survivors face issues of affordability, um, not having a lot of housing available to begin with. We just went through a hurricane down here, um, which lowered our housing stock even more. Um, it's just people are getting priced out through gentrification. Um, and, you know, certainly all survivors have um, sometimes issues with their credit, not having income of their own, maybe due to the violence. Um, or having a less income if they've left their partner. Um, and certainly we have really low wages here in New Orleans. So just being able to maintain housing is hard. 
for everyone, really. Um, and then on top of it, all of those dynamics of the abuser sabotaging potentially the housing situation, making it really hard to have that safety, that stability that survivors so badly need. And on top of that, if you're living with HIV um, and needing access to care, needing transportation to care, um, and in Louisiana, criminalization of your HIV status, I think, is a really big problem. Um, I'll just give one brief example um, of a client that we serve through this program. You know, we we still have laws in our books, um, although they've been reformed slightly, um, which say, you know, the intentional exposure laws. Um, and that has really led to marginalization um, of folks living with HIV. We had a client who... Um, did not intentionally expose someone and yet nonetheless was um, convicted of doing such, um, exposing someone to HIV. And you're put on a sex offender registry um, if you're convicted. And um, that is a huge barrier to housing. (laughs) Normally, we would never serve a sex offender, right? But because of this program, you know, we have learned a lot more. And as Amy was saying, a lot of DV programs just aren't necessarily prepared or equipped to understand the breadth of unique challenges that people face. Um, in this instance, it was um, a, a gay man um, who we've always, you know, served. We've always been welcoming and affirming, and yet we weren't serving a lot of men, cis men or trans men, trans individuals in general. Um, we started serving a lot more because of this project, um, which was Fantastic. Um, but he had a really hard time getting housing, being on the sex offender risk, uh, list for 15 years because of the HIV criminalization in our state. So there's just another layer of barriers on top of everything that you're going through as a survivor. It makes it really, really hard, again, to just have that stable, peaceful home that everybody deserves. Yeah, Exactly. The, 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 the layers of challenges just um, basically continue to create more and more barriers as they, they, they you know, um, are layered upon each other um, and not always realizing as, as um, intimate partner violence organizations, some of the impact that those have on them that we're not really prepared to deal with or talk about. So I think this is a really good precursor to the rest of our conversation around the VATWA HAPO project. But Amy, can you talk to me a little bit about the the HAPO program or the Housing Opportunities for People with AIDS program? Sure. So HAPO is managed by HUD's Office of HIV AIDS Housing, which is the office within HUD that I work in. Um, And HAPWA is the only federal program dedicated to the housing needs of people living with HIV and their families. Under the HAPWA program, HUD makes grants to cities, states, and nonprofit organizations to provide a range of housing assistance types and comprehensive supportive services aimed at improving housing stability and health outcomes for low-income people living with HIV. HAPWA is a national program There are HOPL programs in all 50 states, D.C., Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, and over 100,000 households receive housing assistance um, or supportive services under the HOPL program annually. The program started in 1992, which was before effective antiretroviral therapy was available, 
At the time, what the program really offered was a place for people with AIDS, many of whom had been abandoned by family and friends, to die with dignity. Today, the Hopper program helps people living with HIV stabilize their housing, access and maintain HIV care and treatment, and achieve viral suppression. We know that stable housing is closely linked to successful HIV outcomes. With safe and affordable housing, people with HIV are better able to access medical care and supportive services, get on HIV treatment, take their medication consistently, and see their doctor or healthcare provider regularly. Um, And when a person with HIV gets and stays virally suppressed, they can stay healthy and they cannot sexually transmit HIV to others. So basically, with all of that being said, housing plays a critical role in HIV care and prevention. And the Hopper program is the main program through which the federal government works to ensure housing stability for people living with HIV. Yeah, it's it's um, just so incredible to see the the research that, that's come out around housing stability and and the improvement of health outcomes for folks. Um, you know, and when the the Vawahapwa demonstration project was uh, announced so many years ago now, I was so excited. I you know I was working on our transitional housing project. I was working on our positively safe project at NNEDV, and I was like, this is such a great. Um, opportunity to bring these two topics together, these two groups together. So why, um, you know, why why was the Vawahapo demonstration project such an important, important initiative for the Department of Housing and Urban Development and the Department of uh, Justice to take up? Yeah, so I'll start by saying that although we were obviously aware that people living with HIV were impacted by and experienced domestic violence, this was uh, not a subject area in my office. The Office of HIV-AIDS Housing had specifically dedicated funds to or focused on in a significant way before the joint demonstration initiative with the Department of Justice. And so what prompted the project and illustrated the need for the project was back in 2012, the Obama administration established a federal interagency working group focused on exploring the intersection of HIV, violence against women and girls, and gender-related health disparities. Both HUD and the Department of Justice were named as member agencies of this federal working group, along with several other agencies and departments. The working group was really tasked with um, increasing government and public awareness, facilitating opportunities for partnerships among diverse organizations and service providers, and promoting research to better understand the intersection of HIV, violence against women and girls, and gender-related health disparities. Um, At the time, the working group prioritized addressing intimate partner violence because of its high overall prevalence among women and girls, especially among women living with HIV. Um, And the working group really highlighted the negative impacts that trauma, abuse, and violence have on HIV outcomes, as well as the numerous barriers that prevent women from, um, women with HIV, especially from escaping their abusers. So because of those issues, one of the working group's recommendations was to enhance federal efforts to address HIV and intimate partner violence among homeless and and marginally housed women and girls. 
So what happens with those working groups, our recommendations are put out and generally federal agencies take steps to implement those recommendations. So in response to that specific recommendation, uh, my office, the Office of HIV AIDS Housing and DOJ's Office on Violence Against Women came together to fund a demonstration grant program aimed at addressing the housing, health, and safety needs of low-income people living with HIV who are homeless or in need of housing assistance due to sexual assault, domestic violence, dating violence, or stalking. Uh, DOJ's Office on Violence Against Women uh, identified approximately $1.5 million in funding that they actually transferred to HUD, to my office, to be used for supportive services for survivors. And HUD identified uh, approximately $7.7 million in HOPWA funding to be used for housing, program planning, and coordination costs. So in 2016, the VAWA-HOPWA demonstration grants were awarded. Um, There were eight grantees selected to provide housing and services to survivors with HIV, while also doing this sort of cross-systems level work in their communities to bring together and increase coordination between HIV housing and service providers and victim service providers uh, to service systems that, as you know, have historically been siloed. Uh, And although the federal working group specifically focused on women and girls, the housing and supportive services funded under the VAWA-HOPWA demonstration were made available to all eligible survivors, not just women. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, these demonstration grants represented the first domestic violence focus initiative implemented by HUD's Office of HIV-AIDS Housing uh, and was Also, overall, the first federal partnership and initiative of this kind specifically focused on the intersection of HIV, domestic violence, and housing instability. I think it's so, so great to see how this federal interagency coordination um, really led all the way down to local collaboration around this issue. So, um, Eva, tell us a little bit about your organization's participation in the demonstration project as one of those funded organizations. Like, what drew you all to this project? Yeah, I mean, I think, thank you for the question. I think it it was a really exciting opportunity for us um, to just do better. We knew that some of our survivors were living with HIV. We would make referrals, you know, to the, the primary... Um, uh, healthcare organization that's serving folks with HIV. And, but we knew we could do better. We knew we could provide more. We knew that we needed to learn more and grow. We, we were always looking to kind of think more and more intersectionally about all the different ways in which survivors are living and experiencing abuse through all these different um, lenses and identities. And so, um, we were really excited to work with Crescent Care, the, the HIV provider on this grant. Um, as I mentioned, they had always been a partner, but we really wanted to deepen that connection. And I think, you know, anybody who works with survivors knows that it's all about trust. Um, it's all about whether or not folks believe that you are confidential, that you are safe, that you are really trauma-informed, that you're going to listen to them, that you're going to take them seriously. And so, 
you know, our whole model is based on partnership because we know that different folks have that trust already built. And this was a great example of that. Crescent Care, the HIV provider, already has a lot of trust built with folks in a community that maybe wouldn't have come forward and wouldn't have otherwise come to us for the um, violence that they were experiencing. And so that's that's the biggest thing that drew us, right? I mean, of course, having the housing resources is always a draw because it's a, a huge need always um, in our community. And we um, have since added more and more housing resources and become part of the, the continuum of care. But at that time, we had very little uh, resources. We had been working with what we got from OVW, that transitional housing program within the Department of Justice Office Against Violence, Violence Against Women. Um, they have uh, they had given us some transitional housing money. Um, we had gotten a little bit of um, ESG money through HUD, um, but really we jumped at the opportunity to serve a population that we weren't really serving as well, especially with a resource that is so needed in our community. So um, we were really, really excited um, to to collaborate. And I think to your point, Ashley, you know, just seeing how at a national level folks were willing to break down the silos and start talking to each other and start working out and really thinking about funding projects together um, was inspiring. Um, and that learning, I think, continued both locally and at the top throughout the whole demonstration initiative. And it's it's always so interesting to see, you know, when we do work together, how much further we can take our resources, right? We're always so stretched thin, but when we work together, we, we do break down those silos. We do tend to um, provide a more holistic approach to, to the services that we're 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 offering. We open the doors to other opportunities and, and housing stock um, that maybe wasn't an option initially. Um, so I, I think I mean you touched so much about around the the relationship that y'all had, but how how did you build on it when you came into this project? What were those steps you took um, to begin working more closely with the HIV organization in your community? A lot of meetings. <laughs> As always. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I say that in jest, but we, of course, needed to start talking to each other. We needed to be at the same table. We needed to understand each other's issue in a deeper way. Because I think, you know, we're, when you're in the social services field, like, sort of like as a general umbrella, you kind of think you already know things, I would say. There's some assumptions made. Um, and so we also did a lot of cross-training right from the beginning. What is What are we talking about when we're talking about intimate partner violence? What are we talking about um, in terms of people living with uh, with HIV, like what what are what are their actual experiences like, and how are we also maybe unconsciously biased in ways? You know, just just really learning from each other, and of course, then learning how each other's organizations work and how we're going to work together. So that was the first part, right? Trust building between the organizations and all the logistics of it. But then as we started really sharing clients, of course, that becomes the connection, right? We're trying to to work with folks and care for folks collectively. And when they give us permission to speak to each other, it allows for that, like, again, like the deepening of that relationship through through our clients, through our shared clients. It was really pretty invaluable. And, you know, we began um, doing HIV testing on site. 
Um, the whole project coincided perfectly with our desire to open a health clinic ourselves. A lot of our survivors just don't get basic primary care. Um, and part of that was because we had already we had already decided that we wanted to have a forensic program. So we have a really wonderful forensic nurse, um, but we really wanted to embed the nurse within a greater health health system. And so, um, you know, just. Uh, we were at that point of expansion, thinking about thinking about people's health in a greater way, right? As we were embarking on this journey together, and so, you know, our again, our HIV partners were really, really invaluable to us in terms of um, the development of our small little clinic. We can't really compete with them, and, and, and we're not planning to. We never would. Um, they're they're a really well established FQHC in our community, but. We also wanted to just offer a bit more in terms of health on site. And so it's been, um, yeah, just so many great things have come come out of out of that that building of our relationships. And it really is important that um, we're we're addressing domestic violence beyond like the physical and even emotional abuse that folks are are facing, that understanding that domestic violence has an impact across the entire body, um, you know, from from not just our mental health, but the physical health, the the pain that people may be experiencing. Um, so I think that's such a great um, uh, program that you all have developed and that kind of blossomed out of, you know, this, this partnership with um, the organization you all worked with. So now that the program has wrapped up, right, how, how have you all continued to work together? What does that look like now? Yeah. I mean, I think we, continue to share clients. Um, we continue to refer and cross-refer to each other a lot. Uh, new clients. It's made us look for additional funding to continue to serve these intersections um, and just generally keep up our, our working relationship. I think it can be easy to kind of let it slide a little bit once you don't have the, the project, but I think we've done a pretty good job um, at maintaining that strong relationship. And I will say that the other really interesting part about our our project that I didn't mention before is that we had a legal component. We worked as well with legal aid because we knew from the beginning that folks at this intersection would have a lot of legal barriers to housing, some of which have been mentioned already. And so having an attorney to figure out, okay, is this is this something that we need to deal with through the courts? Um, or can I help you... Uh, reapply for SSI since you've been denied, you know, those kinds of appeals, um, expungements, you know, we know that we have folks with criminal histories, then that's a big barrier to housing. So the legal component was a really cool aspect of our, of our project. And that also continues to, I think, um, inform the way that we serve folks holistically, because we've always had legal services for custody, divorce, and protective orders. Um, But we have often, you know, shied away from some of these other big uh, legal issues that are housing barriers, right? Um, And things like evictions in your past or, yeah, all kinds of, all kinds of legal barriers. I think that's another big part that's continued. Really the awareness of each other's services and the awareness, again, of, of seeing our clients holistically um, has continued far beyond the initiative. Yeah, that's just, um, 
I mean, so, so great to hear that this has continued. I feel like, like you mentioned so often, you know, once that project ends, you're kind of like, it was so great to work with you. I hope to see you around, but really actively working towards maintaining that partnership is, is really such an important piece of, um, holistic services for survivors and just making sure that we're doing the best we can and supporting those that are accessing our, our, our um, services. But I think another really important piece of, of the work that we do is centered around like how we're partnering with survivors. So how in, in your project, how did you all partner with survivors and folks living with HIV? Yeah, that's always something that we're striving for is to really work together. It's not, we try to break down this kind of helper, helpy, giver, receiver dynamic. You know, we don't want to replay the power dynamics to the extent that we can, uh, we can break those down. So, and I think this project was really cool in that it forced us to think about service provision, um, with just especially vulnerable and marginalized folks, like some of the folks that came through our doors just needed a higher level of care. And I'll give you an example of like, we don't really tend to do home visits, right? Um, it's just not something that we do for a lot of different reasons. And yet there were a few clients that just wouldn't, wouldn't be able to um, come to us, right? And most of that was because of physical disability. Um, we had several clients that were really physically disabled, did not have reliable transportation, um, had, you know, we had gotten them housed, um, but maybe still were suffering from abuse um, from not just their abuser, their intimate partner, but often from other family members. Um, and so we got, we had to get really creative. I would say that's one way that I think we partnered well is like we would, when clients would give us permission to talk to each other, if a client got to our office, we would immediately call, for instance, the attorney and say, this client is here, you know, come over now. And she would like sprint over to our office. <laughs> um, or we would go to people's homes. We didn't do it often, but I know it happened a few times because we just needed to. And so I think in this initiative, partnering meant really, truly meeting people where they were at um, and really being open to hearing hearing about all of their experiences, which is something I think we've always strived for. But again, we're doing it just in a new way, um, but consistently seeking feedback, um, asking folks to do surveys and focus groups, um, just give their give their us their voice whenever they possibly could um, to make to continue to help us improve. Right. And that that survivor driven services component is is so important to the relationship building that you've talked about. You know, if we're if we're going to build these relationships with survivors, especially after they've had um you know, they've just left a terrible relationship and maybe they haven't had great relationships in the past you know, us giving them that power back, giving them their autonomy to kind of drive what they're accessing and how they're accessing, I think is such an important piece of, of doing this work well. And if I could just respond to that, I mean, I think the other thing is that we tend to get a little territorial sometimes, I think, in in the services world. And so I think it has also helped us say, like, we're here for you. We want to work with you. And you don't have to, right? Nothing is ever mandatory. Nothing is ever 
prescribed. It's always going to be voluntary. Um, and there were a few clients that, yes, they did want to come and talk to us, but ultimately they wanted to just continue their relationship with Crescent Care, the, the HIV provider. Like, and we couldn't take that personally. You know, we had to figure out a way to to support the other providers in caring for that person or vice versa. You know, there were people that came to us first and disclosed their HIV status as being positive um, who, you know, we would make sure to get connected to care and we'd work together and would get the, would access the housing resources through the HIV provider, but ultimately wanted to just talk to us and not really open up about their situation. And that's okay. You know, I think that's another really important thing is I think we all kind of want to own things sometimes um, or be the decision maker. And these types of collaborations really force us to step back and say, no, what is best for the survivor here? What do they need in order to get to where they want to be? Yes, absolutely. And I'm just understanding that you know, especially when people are coming into our programming programs that they may not want to talk to us and that's fine. They may literally just need a safe place to lay their head and come two months into the program. They may say, okay, I'm ready because there's some folks, they need that opportunity to process that time to heal. Um, and I think that's so important to, to recognize. Um, and, and again, just allowing the survivor to kind of drive the process through the programming, understanding that they're the expert in their life. So I think that's so great. Um, I also recognize that, you know, for, for some folks that can be a challenge, just trying to figure out those dynamics for folks. Um, and you've touched on so many of the benefits of the collaboration, not only with the, um, uh, Crescent Care, but also with working with survivors, but, you know, maybe you both can answer this. Um, what were the biggest challenges that, that your organization or the organizations in this project, um, faced in the demonstration project? I can start. Uh, I will say overall, a big challenge um, for all of the organizations was implementing two different grants under one demonstration project. So each of the grantees got uh, received two different grants, a DOJ grant um, and a HUD grant. And, you know, although they were being implemented together as one demonstration project to serve the same population, the pots of money still came uh, with two different sets of requirements. And an example of this, uh, so uh, some of the organizations faced some challenges around confidentiality requirements and information disclosure. So confidentiality is an important tenant of the HOPA program. And HIV housing providers are required to implement measures and and safeguards to protect HIV status. But a lot of documentation, particularly around income and HIV status, is still needed to receive housing and services. On the DV services side, we found, um, you know, obviously that survivor confidentiality is essential and uh, documentation of this kind is not required and maintained in the same manner. Uh, And so sort of finding a middle ground uh, to ensure clients were eligible for housing and services and that that eligibility was documented in an acceptable way was a a challenge for some of the projects in the um, in the demonstration, the partners really had to think through how information was collected and how referrals were made to fulfill the requirements of both funding streams while not putting survivor confidentiality um, at risk. 
another challenge that we saw, um, particularly at the start of the grants, um, and Eva has touched on this a little bit already, was sort of the lack of common language between HIV housing and service providers and victim service providers. Um, Approaches to providing HIV housing and victim services um, traditionally have been very different. Uh, we've found that uh, the victim service providers typically followed the client's lead on providing personal information and um, identifying needed services, while um, the HIV housing providers, you know, had these questions that they needed to ask and information they needed to collect to establish eligibility. Um, and, and I'll say they often weren't always collecting that information in a trauma-informed way that I think... Um, we saw some success in changing that under this demonstration, but um, but that was definitely sort of a a, a challenge in, in working through. Um, and finally, uh, as has already also been mentioned, another big challenge was the limited availability of safe, affordable housing. Uh, housing is unaffordable for low-income people everywhere, um, and all of our sites express this challenge from upstate New York, um, and as Eva mentioned, in New Orleans, and also to you know San Jose, California. Really, all of the sites experienced this challenge, um, and the lack of uh, affordable housing also just made it really difficult for clients to find safe housing in areas that that worked for them. Yeah, I would say from our part, definitely the confidentiality and data sharing between the two was really tricky. Um, we always, you know, need to get a lot of informed consent from clients and really specific consents from them. Um, and we also want to get them housed and whatever that takes. So the confidentiality piece was was tough in the beginning. I think also, as Amy mentioned, just learning to really talk about HIV status um, in a trauma-informed way and without forcing the issue. Um, you know, we don't really require anything right off the bat at intake. We try to cover as much as we can as far as um, questions and demographics and all that good stuff. But if somebody is coming in for a restraining order because they had a horrible physical incident the night before, we may not get into their, you know, sexual health. Um, so just kind of figuring out on our side how to ask it appropriately and when, um, and then how to ask follow-up questions. Um, more so what we found in New Orleans was that there were already a ton of folks working with the HIV provider who then disclosed, who had disclosed intimate partner violence. Um, and what we found, which was a little tricky, was that a lot of them almost, I mean, I don't know the percentage, but a huge percentage at some point had experienced intimate partner violence. A lot of them had been in the past and had kind of contributed to um you know, housing instability or had contributed to um, poor health outcomes. And that was really like a critical piece of their story, but maybe weren't like fleeing domestic violence in this like traditional sense that we set up our programs sometimes for in terms of housing. Like, are you fleeing right now? You know, so we had to really think that through as a team, like, 
I think as long as we could make the case that there was a threat, and there almost always was, <laughs> between the current situation of housing insecurity um, and the trauma that they had experienced in the past, then they were eligible. But I think just eligibility was kind of a, a sticking point for a while um, because we kind of had an influx of folks coming in um, that definitely wanted to talk about trauma or some of them wanted to talk about the trauma and intimate partner violence. And some of them had been a long time. So, you know, just kind of figuring out those dynamics. Um, but I would say that the, probably the biggest challenge for us overall was trying to get folks stable long-term. Um, as I mentioned, the folks that we saw through this initiative were some of the most vulnerable and marginalized um, that that we work with. And many uh, were working off with no income or fixed income. Uh, many just were never going to, uh, weren't at this juncture going to make it paying rent on their own from income within, you know, three, six, nine months, a year, even um, folks with severe disability um, and so I think we just were struggling, I think, a lot to figure out well, what what is the next step. Um, and we were able to get a, several of them um, into, you know, housing choice vouchers into the Section 8 program here, which is fantastic. And we were able to work really hard with others um, and some, I think, transferred to other programs. Um, but I think that's the biggest challenge in general uh, with our housing programs and particularly with this project too, is just um, recognizing that it, it takes a very long time for folks to get through what they've experienced, right? The trauma, the pain, um, the violence. Um, and then on top of it are are sometimes facing health challenges and a myriad of other challenges that that make it hard to live this ideal of independence that we kind of put out there as like, this is what everybody should be going for. Well, that's just not the reality for some people. And we have to figure out, I think, as a society, how to care for people long-term. Um, if we're gonna, you know, have the wage gap that we have and have the discrimination that we have. And, you know, it's just not realistic, but that's kind of the socialist in me talking. <laughs> yeah, Um all those challenges, you know, that even before the project started were there and unfortunately, you know, systemically continue to be there, right? We can't, we, we can change, um, or we can support folks and, and, and overcoming those barriers or those challenges, but ultimately in society, they, they're still in place. And for every person, it's going to take, you know, that, um, extra effort to, to overcome some of those systemic, um, uh, you know, challenges and barriers and whatnot. Um, and I think, Eva, you started kind of touching on this is flipping those challenges into how they became successes. So, you know, you talked about folks that, um, you know, getting them access to to housing choice vouchers. Um, you know, I think that's a huge success for, for a lot of people that maybe would not have had access to that housing before the program. So from both of you, what successes from the demonstration project do you both believe um, would benefit intimate partner violence and HIV advocates that listen to this podcast? So um, I'll start by saying that one success is that over 200 households received housing assistance and supportive services under this initiative. Uh, as Eva mentioned, the funding was time limited. 
Uh, and there was an expe- expectation of grantees and the service providers that the assisted households either attain self-sufficiency or be transitioned to another form of housing assistance by the end of the grant period. Um, also, as Eva mentioned, it, that this was a struggle for many of the grantees just due to limited housing options and a lot of the other issues that she meant it, mentioned. But Overall, the grantees were effective at maintaining housing stability for the assisted households at the end of the grant. I will say mostly through transitioning them to other forms of assistance, but in in our eyes, that that was a success. Um, Another success from the demonstration was um, an increased focus on cisgender men as well as LGBTQ plus survivors. The partnerships formed under this demonstration between HIV housing providers and DV service providers created an opportunity for um, each of these providers to start offering services to individuals that traditionally may not have sought services from them. Um, The HIV housing providers had stronger connections to the LGBTQ plus populations. Um, which then, you know, began getting these subpopulations connected to DV services. Um, and the grantees began, you know, learning about and attempting to remove the barriers, preventing cisgender men and um, the LGBTQ plus subpopulations from seeking victim services. And finally, another success, um, and Eva touched on this earlier, but uh, was the cross-training um, that the agencies implemented. Um, I feel like they did a wonderful job of uh, of hosting these cross-agency trainings and sort of being in consistent communication with each other and really uh, talking to each other about HIV and IPV and the different, um, you know, issues and needs of clients um, associated with those. Um, and each of the projects took time to, you know, attempt to break down silos and improve client services through training. Um, this included basic cross-training on HIV and domestic violence, uh, training on trauma-informed service provision that was especially, I think, beneficial to the HIV housing providers, which um, I feel like just across the grantees, Some were doing a better job of that. And, um, you know, there were sort of varying levels of uh, trauma-informed care being implemented in their programs when when this demonstration started. Um, And there was also, you know, cross-training on the intake and eligibility processes of the HIV housing providers and victim service providers to ensure there was no wrong door for clients to get connected with services. And this... Cross-training and, you know, relationship building resulted in effective universal screening and intake processes being developed, um, as well as improved um, and streamlined or, you know, even new referral processes between HIV and DV service providers that didn't exist before. I'd say that pretty much covers it. (laughs) Um, That was, I agree, you know, our successes we're just in in opening our eyes in serving serving folks that we hadn't traditionally served. Um, really, I hope affirming them, affirming uh, their experiences, and working as you mentioned in partnership together. Um, I think coming full circle back to my first comment, 
I think we did succeed in reducing some stigma um, for folks, for folks in my agency, at least. I'll speak to just my agency. I think um, we did definitely uh, reduce our own bias or stigma or fears around HIV status um, and really have more resources and understanding of, of where how to work with folks, how to point them in the right direction, how to reconnect them to care if they're out of care, you know, um, how to ask about whether they want to test or if they're at risk. Um, just, you know, generally a level of awareness. And as Amy mentioned, certainly um, working with more cis men, working with more LGBTQ folks, particularly trans folks here in this community, we know, um, as I think Amy mentioned early on, just the level of intimate partner violence and violence overall that the trans community faces here in New Orleans is really high and across the whole country. Um, So certainly helping to build a better relationship, um, more trust, build those bridges with folks that maybe wouldn't have come to seek our services otherwise, making them feel um, really welcome and affirmed in their entire lived experience here, I hope, um, is the biggest success really that we can we can offer is, is helping, helping folks living at this intersection to recognize that they're not alone, um, that there are folks in multiple agencies that they can work with to meet their needs, um, that their voice matters, that it's powerful. Um, and we still have growing and learning to do, you know, but I think we were really successful in a lot of different ways um, on, on all different levels in terms of service provision, in terms of our internal landscapes and understanding, in terms of our collaboration across agencies. And then, of course, you know, stepping back even further on a national level, I think we all knew before the demonstration initiative that that the issue was a big one and um, and that we could work together better and more successfully um, in collaboration. And so the, the initiative really proved that. I, I, I love the point you made with regards to like um, uh, growing and learning and whatnot and just realizing like it doesn't stop here, right? Just because the project's over doesn't mean we don't have more to learn, um, more folks to talk to, more collaborations to happen, that that this is... Um, this is evolving over time, right? We're, we're continuously learning. We're continuously meeting new people and hearing those different experiences. So kind of going off of that, that idea of growing and learning, what are the resources either of you would recommend to folks um, that kind of follow up on, on the project or would help people to, to really, I guess, um, explore these partnerships Yeah, so earlier this year, uh, my office, the Office of HIV AIDS Housing, released a video series to summarize and share lessons learned and outcomes from the VAWA HAPWA demonstration. The three-part video series is called Addressing the Intersection of HIV and Intimate Partner Violence. And we were lucky enough to have you, Ashley, speak in two of the videos and share data and information on how the intersection of HIV and DV can be addressed through improved service delivery and partnerships. And then the third video features grantee representatives, including Eva, discussing the outcomes, challenges, and uh, successes of their VAWA HAPWA demonstration grants. And those videos can be accessed um, through the HAPWA page on the HUD Exchange portal. Yeah, I mean, I would say 
Y'all's toolkit is amazing. I can plug that. <laughs> Thanks, Eva. <laughs> yeah. Um, but for all the service, you know, survivor services folks listening, I would just recommend starting the conversation locally, right? There's someone in your community, even if you don't have, you know, a big FUHC or a big HIV provider, um, there's, there are folks in your community that are working on this issue, I guarantee it. And so really the best thing to do is to reach out to them. Um, just, just start reaching out. Even if you're a small shelter program in a rural area, there's, there's somebody um, nearby, I guarantee that you could contact and just start building that relationship, which I know is a big ask. I, you know, especially if you are a frontline person, um, the, the lack of time <laughs> is real. Um, but if you're listening to this podcast, that means you have a little bit of time. And so, and you care about this issue. And so I think, um, yeah, get out there make that, make that relationship happen. It can only improve your services. It can only open your eyes further. Um, you know, doing things in collaboration is always going to be, is always going to be better. Even when it's hard and there are challenges, it's always going to serve survivors better. And consider the ways that you could be talking to survivors. Um, you could do an anonymous survey or um, put just some literature, you know, some pamphlets in your waiting area. If you don't want to ask people directly, have, you know, put it out there so that folks know that they could talk about it with you if they wanted to. And certainly having connections with your healthcare providers is so critical um, for so many different reasons. So if you don't already have those connections those are those are really critical. So that would be my recommendation: um, is just start really local and do whatever you can to to learn about the issue um, right where you right where you are. Yeah, that's that's such a great advice. I, I really appreciate that, and and just recognizing that even just that first meeting, just if you can have one meeting and you don't meet again for another three months because of other things, like that first meeting is so helpful and just building that relationship, but also like. Now you know what they do, ideally, from that conversation that you're having. And if you if you're working with a survivor, you know now, okay, I can rec- I can I can refer them to that program. So, I think that's such an important piece is just starting small and understanding that you know it does take time. You're going to have to build on it, um, but it is it's just important to to make that first step. So. So thank you both so much um, for being here. It really was a pleasure to speak with you both, Amy and Eva, um, and and I. You know, I, I'm sure I'll, I'll be able to share some some links um, via our little description at the bottom of our page, so I can link to the the things that Amy and Eva have mentioned for those of you listening. Um, but again, I, I'm thankful to Amy and Eva. But I hope you all will tune into our next episode. Thanks for joining us today on Expanding the Continuum, brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. If you like our show and want to know more about addressing the intersections of HIV and intimate partner violence, visit us online at ipvhealth.org and at nnedv.org. Thanks for listening.